Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. You know, before I get too far into this episode, I just want to thank everybody again for listening. I uh, just hit over a thousand total plays on my podcast, uh, which is roughly, this will be the, the 20th episode, maybe 21 if you count episode zero, which was like my story. Um, and it, I'm pretty amazed by that, honestly. When I first decided to start recording this podcast, it was honestly just a way for me to kind of babble about this stuff and get it out of me because I'm kind of an oversharer. I talk a lot and I could really exhaust people with like my thoughts on things. So I figured if I were to just start like just sort of getting this out of me, then on the off chance that it helps somebody, it'll serve a, a dual purpose, right? I'd have the opportunity to really just actually go in depth on a lot of this stuff. But more importantly, there'd be an opportunity that somebody gets something valuable out of it. I never thought that I'd have more than maybe a couple of people listening, people that I knew. You know, I didn't really think I would reach near as many people as I have. And that number seems to be continuing to grow. So I, I haven't been doing any major like promoting. I can only imagine that the the new listeners that I'm getting are from folks sharing the the message, sharing my podcast, sharing what they've experienced with it. I have a feeling that maybe a few found it via the internet. It doesn't really tell me that much. I mean, I probably could dig into it, but for now, it's just been it's just been an amazing, you know, feeling to to see that that number. Like that's that's an awesome feeling. I honestly just didn't expect it. It, it wasn't a goal of mine to reach such and such amount of people. Uh, you know, I'm not looking to like retire off this or make any money from it or anything. This is just me giving back out into the world, you know, a little bit of living amends going on here. You know what I mean? So, so thank you. Thank you to everybody. It's greatly appreciated. You know, through this, I've had the opportunity of being on a few podcasts some of them were sharing my story as a as a person who's done time some as as someone who's recovered or recovering from alcohol uh, abuse and the traumas associated and uh, recently one that's just really revolved around like my abusive home life when i was a child more recently my recovery from having been in a narcissistic relationship that isn't from my most recent relationship that actually ended really well and things are still going well with that uh, but I was in a narcissistic relationship and that did a lot of damage. And so I was able to, to talk about that. I think a lot of people who experience narcissistic relationships primarily are women who have dealt with men that are narcissistic. So I was really appreciative that she reached out to me and we were able to share a different side of that story. But none of this could have happened if I hadn't started this podcast. And while my reasons for starting it were a little selfish and that I just needed to get a bunch of shit off my chest, it obviously has resonated with a few people because I still have regular regular listeners. Again, that just feels amazing. So thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in and for those that have shared and spread that message. I really appreciate it. So now we're in the next phase of, of the podcast. I'm going to start going down the path of looking into the 12 by 12. I think that going over the two major pieces of literature in AA is a really good idea for this podcast after having made it through the first 164 pages of the big book and a couple of the stories. Not much is going to change outside of that. Uh, and when I do start having guests on, I think I'm just going to continue to keep those as bonus episodes. That way, this is still the weekly thing. 
And that way there isn't any pressure for me to have a regular guest. Um, cause my, my, my schedule is pretty all over the place. So, um, I don't want to feel pressured to perform. I want to be able to keep this sort of like, uh, as organic as possible. Therefore, the conversations I have with people as organic as possible, especially with the holidays coming up, you know, this might change. I might be able to to make that a, a more regular thing that is a weekly part of the podcast. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But for now, I think the the weekly upload that just is as it has been, but just a different piece of literature. And then the occasional bonus episode that is that is an interview with somebody. And those interviews should hopefully be starting right after the holidays. Yeah. I think that'll be, that'll be pretty perfect. So I think there's, if there's anything really that I'm going to touch on, it's this, you know, this episode is going to be coming out after Thanksgiving and with Thanksgiving coming up, um, I know a lot of people struggle with the holidays around this, you know, around drinking, around being recovered, a lot of traumas in the holidays with people and families and stuff. I don't have a lot of those. And so it's sometimes it's difficult for me to kind of resonate with that. I'm pretty empathic. So I understand that some people just can't deal with their families. My, my family situation for the, for the holidays was always pretty okay. There wasn't a lot of drama. There wasn't a lot of like issues with that. I mean, I was judged a little for being the poor kid. I was not really put down or anything. You know, there was never any like feelings of inadequacy. Like I would show up, we'd, we'd, have like two separate family get togethers and then I would go home and then I would have a Christmas in the morning. So for the most part, that was probably the most normal that my childhood and my upbringing was. And that didn't really stop until I went to prison. When I came out, we really didn't do much of that. And then when mom passed away, that really put the fork in it. You know, we, we just stopped doing that, but there isn't really any sadness for me revolving around that loss Yeah. Last year I spent Christmas with the the person I was seeing and her family. And, you know, Thanksgiving was pretty low key. Again, I think I was with their family before that, you know, it was probably friends. Uh, I think it was friends for Christmas and Thanksgiving. I'm a kind of a nomad when it comes to this stuff. Uh, This year for Thanksgiving, I'm going to be, I will have spent time with, uh, with some friends. He's just having like a casual get together for people that don't have any family in town. Uh, His family's not in town and everybody that's going is either of the same boat or are coming later after a family get together. So it's just going to be some friends. Um, some of them drink, some of them don't drink. Uh, for me, that's not an issue. I won't have any problems there. They all know I don't drink or at least the important like hosts. They don't know. They know that I don't drink. So I've hung out with them before when there's people over and I'm not really worried about it. So it should be a fun time. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just working on being more social in general. So this is kind of a perfect opportunity because I can go a period without really hanging out with anybody event, see a bunch of people and then, you know, kind of come back to my little, my little hovel here. That being said, I I do fully understand how difficult this time is for for other people. I might not understand it as a relatable thing, but I do understand that it's a real thing. Statistically, even without alcoholism being put into place, it's, it's a hard time for people. So what I do and what I have done in the past and what we'll be doing this year is I'm going to sign up for some slots for some of the marathon meetings that the different meeting halls have around town, you know, because they usually struggle to have them all fully chaired. And so I, I try to sign up for some of those. And there's also usually some sort of a, you know, get together where they might need people helping serve food or something like that. So basically I'm just going to make my available myself available. I do have some plans for Christmas, but it's not for the entirety of Christmas. And I have some plans for new year's, but again, same thing. So, 
uh, while I might not be attending as many meetings as I used to attend, um, I think that's my best way of being service of service. And I would recommend anybody listening out there that, you know, if you're not really sure what you're going to do with yourself for the holidays, try to, try to look into, you know, and, and this is a hard time for you. Uh, as Bill Wilson would suggest, do some work for others. And the best way to do that uh, would be to, to find out if, you know, you have a hall or, or uh, you know, some sort of a meeting hub that maybe you don't really attend or haven't been to and see if you can sign up for some of those things. Even just attending, sometimes there's like really off hours where maybe there's only two or three people in the meeting. Um, sometimes, you know, they're doing like a kid's thing where they're handing out presents. That's what, when I first came in, four days after my, my suicide attempt, five days after my suicide attempt. That's what I did. I, ha- I handed out presents to some kids. It was the only thing I really could like mentally wrap my head around um, at the time. And that helped a lot. It's something that still sticks with me. It was a really great time. Those kids were, were super stoked to be getting presents. Some of them were foster kids, you know. Uh, so some of them were... They were with their their families for the first time, you know. It was it was a neat time. Um, but that's something you know that I would recommend, it, even if you might still be somebody that's struggling with like traditional meetings and might even be struggling with feeling like you're welcomed or you know still at, at odds with like your place in this. Um, if you can suspend that just for the holidays, um, you know, not as a way to like placate that feeling or or force faith on yourself or whatever, just to kind of get out of yourself for a minute. You know, if that's what you're looking for, that's a good opportunity. Lots of places like that could use a hand. All right. With that being said, uh, you know, I'm going to actually, I'm going to have a little call to action here. You know, I know a lot of you folks have started following my, uh, my Facebook page. Maybe some people have followed and haven't listened to the episodes yet. Whatever the case is, if you've reached out to my social media in some way or have emailed me or would like to share with me what, you know, what the holidays mean to you right now. Like maybe there's a difference how, how they used to mean something maybe negative or harmful and maybe that's changed or maybe it's still a hard time for you and you're struggling. Uh, I'd love to hear from you all about that. Again, you can reach me at Facebook, An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA, uh, even though that's not really like there's a group and a and an actual like business page. The group is probably an easier way to actually communicate with other folks that may have similar interests. Um, the page itself is kind of, it's a little wonky uh, to, to interact with. That doesn't mean that I don't see your posts. That doesn't mean that I won't interact with them. Uh, it just is not as easy to navigate as the group is because you can't share your own content. It's kind of like a... It's a very weird setup. I don't like using it as often, but either one of those will work. Twitter at an atheist in. Uh, I check all my tweets, even if I don't interact as much on there. And you can also reach me at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. Definitely feel free to reach out to me there. That's a lot long form, a bit more of a long form way of, of interacting with me. So, you know, feel free to go off. I, I, I myself am a wallet texter type of person. So, you know, if you have a big story or something that you really need to get off your chest, feel free to share it there. Uh, I don't plan on reading any of this stuff. I might reference an abstract from it, uh, but I'm not ever going to like out anybody or share their story without explicitly asking for permission to do so. So it's all safe communication, however you want to go about it. I check all my messages. So if you want to reach out through Messenger during, you know, through Facebook, that that's a fantastic way to do so. On Instagram, atheist underscore in underscore AA. Yeah, again, I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to share with me, you know, what they're going through, what, what their holidays are like, what, uh, 
what's changed? All right, so this is the Daily Stoic, November 30th. Follow the Logos. The person who follows reason in all things will have both leisure and a readiness to act. They are at once both cheerful and self-composed. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 10.12b. The guiding reason of the world, the Stoic called this the Logos, works in mysterious ways. Sometimes the Logos gives us what we want. Other times it gives us precisely what we do not want. In either case, they believe that the Logos was an all-powerful force that governed the universe. There is a helpful analogy to explain the Logos. We are like a dog leashed to a moving cart. The direction of the cart will determine where we go. Depending on the length of the leash, we also have a fair amount of room to explore and determine the pace. But ultimately, what each of us must choose is whether we will go willingly or be painfully dragged. Which will it be? Cheerful acceptance or ignorant refusal? In the end, they amount to the same. So I feel like that the what Marcus was saying was a little different from what the interpretation was, but they're both pretty important. I guess looking at reason as guiding reason of the world, like the entirety of of re, as reason is like a flowing river of a thing. You can either go along with that or not. Either way, it's going to keep going. Uh, but then also the other idea of just if you follow a sense of reason, then you'll you'll not only be ready to act, but you'll also just have like a sense of pleasure. I, I get like both both can be a thing. One doesn't necessarily have to subscribe to the idea that reason is this huge flowing river and you can either be drug along or uh, you can go willingly. Now removing reason from that life just is that. And it's really easy for me to sort of uh, extrapolate that message to the idea of life being a river. You know, there is no stopping it. There is eventually a stop to it. Uh, but as far as like life flowing as it is, you know, time flowing as it is, even though it's a construct, it does exist. It is a thing. Tomorrow is going to come. Living in tomorrow isn't healthy, but living in the reason that tomorrow will come is, and living with the idea that you can be prepared for that is as well. And that kind of speaks to one of the last few readings that touched on this idea of just being prepared. I feel like the first 40 years of my life really probably was me kicking and screaming against the flow of all this. Me just like either assuming that I guess my inaction was not my fault, uh, but not really doing any effort to change anything was me kicking and screaming. Life progresses and so should I. And if my response to traumas, my response to hardships, my response to struggles, my response to things going my way or even going against my way, if my response to those are to not alter myself in some way, some fundamental way to be better for the, for them, um, then I'm kind of kicking and screaming. Like I'm fighting the ebb and flow of life and I'm not prepared and I'm not leisurely enjoying any of it. And that's definitely been the truth. This last year or so, I have understood that the flow of life and time is just going to be. The more I accept that and just sort of live within that in a healthy way, the happier I have been, just period. And that's not even like, it's not some attempt to put some woo-woo spin on it or anything. It's really just accepting my place in in all of this. You know, I think that's, again, that's why I come back to this, that this fact that I don't need a higher power for this program, for life. It, it all comes down to this realization that allowing things to just be, including myself, gives me a sense of peace I've never had before. And it doesn't have to come with me giving anything over to something. I'm not giving my life over to this flow of the world. Um, but I am accepting 
these things as they are, the more I'm able to do that, uh, the, the healthier I, I get, the happier I get. I'm looking at, you know, the potential that I have ADHD and that most of my life has been an unnecessary struggle. If I go down that path, kicking and screaming, then yeah, I'm going to make myself unhappy and I'm going to make myself feel like I've, I've failed in some way or that I have um, willfully been unhealthy or that I've never lived my true potential. And so what's the fucking point now? It's too late. You know, I go down a lot of dark paths that way, but much like my drinking, it stopped when it had to. So this, this is just, it just is, you know, if, if I find a medication that helps me and I find some sort of treatment that helps me, you know, if my doctor comes back and agrees that that's what's going on and that's the case, great. If not great, it just is. And then I can go from there. And I can work on being prepared for tomorrow, which will come whether I want it to or not. So I really liked the reading. I didn't think I was going to at first as I was reading. I was like, meh. But I think that's an important thing, especially for folks that are in recovery that are like living for that day, that count, you know, the count to get bigger. I see people talking about like, I have three years of recovery. And then in like a response to that, I only have 30 days or I only have 10 days, you know, that's living in somebody else's like ebb and flow, living in this idea that you'll never get three years. I lived that way, I guess, for a little bit uh, in in recovery. I wanted to hurry up and get to the one year so that I could feel that healthy and happiness. Sometimes, man, I just have to. I just have to sit in the bad. Yes, I don't want to go too far into that, but uh, I think I think yeah. The the big takeaway for me from that is uh, the more I allow myself to just see the the world as it is and accept my place in that, then the happier I am. So with that, let's get right into the 12 by 12. So as a recap, what I'm going to do here is I am going to read the step and the tradition kind of back to back. I'm going to read directly from the book um, and just sort of like make my comments as I go, as I have been. Now, this book, again, it's it's a tough one for folks that are non-believers because I feel it is because it is super God heavy. This was Bill Wilson answering his depression with work and that work became very godly for him. It, it was a spiritual awakening. It was another of his spiritual awakenings. And as a result, this book came out. Now, obviously, the steps had already been around for a while. This book itself was written in 1952. So it was you know, quite a bit after the big book, after this program had been put to use. You know, the, the sort of rumored story goes he fell into a pretty deep depression. What he did to get out of it was to work work through it. Which, as we've seen, as I've seen, uh, that's pretty common for him. Uh, if he wasn't working with others, he was working through it by by writing a book that would help others. And maybe that wasn't always the case when he was first writing the big book, and maybe he was trying to get some money from the Rockefellers, and maybe all that's true. And maybe when he died, he you know was in a deep depression again, and he was crying for a drink. Maybe all that's true as well. Uh, but you look at the man's life, and you see when he finally got to the point to where he was done with all the drinking... The most important thing to him was to work through this stuff, not to give up. He didn't give up. I don't feel like he did. So that, that is, that's important to me. I don't glorify the man as anything other than just a guy, but he had a lot of impact on something that was killing a lot of people. It is pretty easy to fall into a depression for me. And so it is inspiring to see someone work through that as often as he did. Someone who, someone who had everything, basically all the things he wanted in life, and he was still struggling. That actually reminds me, I, re- I watched this uh, this Will Smith thing 
and forgive me if I've already talked about this. I feel like I talked about it with a friend and not on this, but Will Smith has this documentary thing that he put together called The Best Shape of My Life. I wasn't going to watch it at first because I thought it was going to be one of these like, I have all the trainers in the world and everything's perfect for me and I'm going to go from like, quote unquote, fat to super ripped in no time and it's going to be this great adventure. And I ended up watching a little bit of it and then I found that it wasn't that at all. It was a 50 something year old Will Smith struggling with very, very similar problems to me. And a lot of it was coming out while he was writing his memoir and a lot of it was coming out while he was talking with his family and just, you know, over overcoming like normal human anxieties, normal human feelings of failure, basic stuff, you know, feeling older, knowing he's older and getting older and, and not being able to do the things he was able to do and then having to come to terms with that. And I found myself relating to this uber rich, you know, actor, movie star, human. He's just a human, just a guy. And there's a lot of parallels with that and then with how Bill Wilson lived his life after he got in recovery meaning that he was a very human person, just a guy, just someone who was struggling with some shit. And instead of letting that struggle consume him, he worked through it. So um, anyways, if anybody's interested in that documentary, I definitely recommend it. It is a very humane thing to watch. It did a lot of good for me to see somebody overcoming some stuff that they've been dealing with their whole life at a time when I'm overcoming stuff that I've been dealing with my whole life, you know, stuff that I've just ignored and sort of buried because I thought that was expected of me. It's good, good for that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just an interesting thing. Hey, fuck, it got me back in the gym. I've been trying to get back in the gym and then watching this. So I, it, I joined my gym and went back to it the following Monday. So that's pretty cool. Anyways, I'm going to start with the forward and then we'll get right into the steps here. Alcoholics Anonymous is a worldwide fellowship of more than 100,000 alcoholic men and women who are banded together to solve their common problems and to help fellow sufferers in recovery from that age-old baffling malady, alcoholism. So this edition uh, looks like was 1995 is the edition that I have. The 52nd printing Pretty impressive. So as of 1995, nearly 2 million people have recovered through AA. And also this book uses recovered for folks that feel like they want to use that. This book deals with the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It presents an explicit view of the principles by which AA members recover and by which their society functions. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. AA's 12 traditions apply to the life of the fellowship itself. They outline the means by which AA maintains its unity and relates itself to the world about it, the way it lives and grows. And the 12, the 12 traditions, I will go again on record and say that is why the program continues to exist. It saved that, that part of the program, the the way that those are followed kept all of the ego out of this program. There's still some there. I'm not saying that this is free of ego, but none of that ego could m ruin what these people had started back in the, the late thirties at times, you know, the processes are a little ob obscure and or archaic and weird, and it can take forever for voices to be heard. You know, it took forever for atheists to get any kind of recognition from the general assembly. But it also keeps people from being greedy and power-hungry and absurdly corrupt. Though the essays which follow are written mainly for members, it is thought by many that a of AA's friends that these pieces might arouse interest and find application outside AA itself. 
Many people, non-alcoholics, re report that as a result of the practice of AA's 12 steps, they've been able to meet other difficulties of life. They think that the 12 steps can mean more than sobriety for problem drinkers. They see in them a way to happy and effective living for many alcoholic or not. Uh, so Russell Brand has a book called Recovery, and he does apply the 12 steps as sort of a way of life for just about anybody who's struggling with something that they don't feel like they have a lot of control over. And it's a really good read. It's got a great sense of humor. Uh, he asks a lot of really good questions. He points out a lot of really good things. And he does help me to see that uh, if this can apply to anybody, then that means, you know, if the program itself can be kind of like translated to any kind of an addiction, then a lot of the language that's in the big book is unnecessary. It just sort of solidifies that for me. Uh, a lot of the the shaming of alcoholics that can kind of come from some of the wording in the book, you know, the abnormality of us, knowing that anybody can apply this to anything that they're struggling with sort of subverts that. And I, I appreciate that for it. There is, too, a rising interest in the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Students of human relations are beginning to wonder how and why AA functions as a society. I have no idea if this is true. Why is it, they ask, that in AA no member can be set in personal authority over another, that nothing like a central gov government can anywhere be seen? How can a set of traditional principles, having no legal force at all, hold the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in unity, unity and effectiveness? The second section of this volume, though designed for AA's membership, will give such inquirers an inside view of AA never before possible. Alcoholics Anonymous began in 1935 at Akron, Ohio, as the outcome of a meeting between a well-known surgeon and a New York broker. Both were severe cases of alcoholism and were destined to become co-founders of, of the AA Fellowship. The basic principles of AA, as they are known today, were borrowed mainly from the fields of religion and medicine, though some ideas upon which success finally depended were the results of, not of nothing of noting the behavior and needs of the fellowship itself. After years of trial and error in selecting the most workable tenets upon which the society could be based, and after a large amount of failure in getting alcoholics to recover, three successful groups emerged. The first at Akron, Ohio, the second at New York, and the third at Cleveland. Even then, it was hard to find two score of sure recoveries in all three groups. And, as a side note, those three groups were vastly different from each other. While they were similar in the message that they spread, they, they had a different way of going about it. When it splintered off again, those changed even further, depending on the area they were in. Nevertheless, the Infant Society determined to set down its experience in a book which finally reached the public in April 1939. At this time, the recoveries numbered about 100. The book was called Alcoholics Anonymous, and from it, the fellowship took its name. In it, alcoholism was described from the alcoholic's point of view. The spiritual ideas of the society were codified for the first time in the 12 steps, and the application of these steps to the alcoholic's dilemma was made clear. The remainder of the book was devoted to 30 stories or case histories in which the alcoholics described their drinking experiences and recoveries. This established identification with alcoholic readers and proved to them that the virtually impossible had now become possible. The book, Alcoholics Anonymous, became the basic text of the fellowship, and it still is. This present volume proposes to broaden and deepen the understanding of the 12 steps as first written in the earlier work. With the publication of the book Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939, the pioneering period ended 
and a prodigious uh, chain reaction set in as the re uh, recovered alcoholics carried their message to still others. In the next years, alcoholics flocked to AA by tens of thousands, largely as a result of excellent and continuous publicly freely publicity freely given by magazines and newspapers throughout the world. Clergymen and doctors alike rallied to the next movement, giving it unstinted support and endorsement. Around this time is when they were starting to really struggle with how anonymous they should be, how how much press, you know, the idea that they should be attra an attraction group rather than a promotion group. This all came from like growing pains, like learning the hard way. You know, when too much of this was put in the public eye, then it started to get backlash and negativity that they didn't want. So they they pulled that back a little bit. And that that sort of helped formulate the you know the writing and the processes of of uh, of this book. Well, at least of the steps and the traditions. This startling expansion brought with it very severe growing pains. And they talk about that. Proof that alcoholics could recover had been made, but it was by no means sure that such great numbers of yet erratic people could live and work together with harmony and good effect. Everywhere there arose threatening questions of membership, money, personal relations, public relations, management of groups, clubs, and scores of other perplexities. It was out of this vast welter of explosive experience that AA's 12 traditions took form and were first published in 1946 and later confirmed at AA's first international convention held at Cleveland in 1950. The tradition section of this volume portrays in some detail the experience which finally produced the 12 traditions and so gave AA its present form, substance, and unity. As AA now enters maturity, it has begun to reach into 40 foreign lands. Again, in 1995, this was 141 countries. In the view of its friends, this is but the beginning of its unique and valuable service. It is hoped that this volume will afford all who read it a close-up view of the principles and forces which have made Alcoholics Anonymous what it is. How crazy is that? It took them almost, what, 13 years to get to the point to where they, they could formulate a, uh, you know, the traditions. Yeah, the group began in 1935, but I'd say from 1939 on is when it was actually Alcoholics Anonymous probably 1940 and it wasn't until 1952 that this stuff was even put in print the traditions and and a long form explanation for them so up until that point people were just sort of winging this shit hoping for the best it's crazy step one we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable many consider this step to be the only step you can do 100 percent some feel that this step is the only one that you have to do 100%. So I think I'm going to talk a little bit about it before getting into the reading, just to kind of flesh out exactly how I feel about this stuff. But also, you know, there's not a lot to this book. It's a fairly small book. So I want to not only offer some insight, but kind of give, give these episodes a little bit of meat and really explore this stuff. So uh, step one for me is... It used to be the easiest one for me to kind of wrap my head around. And lately I've come around to the idea that this idea of powerless uh, isn't necessarily something that serves me. Alcohol definitely has a, a different response to me than it does for, you know, most normal drinkers. That That's pretty clear to me. I don't need to explore that any further. I definitely prescribe to the idea of the allergy even though it's probably not scientifically based, you know, we're not, I'm not allergic. I can't take a Benadryl and then go get drunk, but I have explored responsible drinking and pretty much every facet that I can. And I fail at it every time. So going with the idea of what alcoholic means, uh, the idea that you, that a person is dependent on alcohol, both emotionally and physically, 
and can't control how much they drink. In that way, yeah, I guess I would be you know, powerless. But it's not something that rules me. And I think that's where the word powerless can kind of get sticky for folks. Today, I don't obsess over drinking. I don't obsess over the idea that I want to drink. I, I very, very rarely even consider the idea of drinking. Usually it comes in the form of, well, beer would be nice by the pool. Or that sounds like it would taste good, you know, hearing the description of a drink. Or I used to really like ciders. And thinking about, you know, yeah, some of those ciders were pretty good. But I don't, I don't become obsessed with that idea. It's a thought that comes and goes. It doesn't have any attachment to me. So it's hard for me to say that alcohol is powerless or that I am powerless over alcohol right now uh, because I don't feel like I'm powerless over my options of that first drink. I don't feel like alcohol has a standing power over me. It's just something I don't do anymore. It has come through a lot of work with the steps, the program, other things, therapy, just kind of correcting a lot of traumas that used to lead me to believe that my only you know, lot in life was to drink. The only way I could ever feel at one with anything was to drink. Throughout the years, that's left me. So it's it's an odd thing to read this and know that, yeah, you know what? My life had become unmanageable. And at the time, alcohol was, was definitely something that kind of controlled the destruction of that life. But when I look at this step now, it's my relationship with alcohol and with even the wording of this step has changed. The idea that I would repel from alcohol as if from a hot flame isn't one that interests me. I don't want this to have a purpose in my life, but I don't want alcohol to rule it. And that's where I think this idea of a powerlessness comes in. For some people, they get stuck on that. Um, but I can safely say right now that through the work, through having as much stuff as I have in front of the first drink, um, I don't sit in fear of it. I don't wallow in that feeling of powerlessness. I don't even really think about it that often. I don't think about not drinking hardly ever. I went to a party on Saturday and hung out with a, a great group of friends. And a lot of them were drinking. Some weren't. A couple of people that I, I go with uh, are also non-drinkers. One is just a non-drinker for health reasons. He, he's not even a, a problem drinker. Um, so I'm not, I'm not alone in being sober there, but I didn't have an interest in drinking. So I guess that's what I'm saying is it, it doesn't sit in my head all the time. It's, it doesn't sit in my heart, this craving to drink. And I know that's not going to be the case for everybody. For some, it's going to take a long time for them to ever get to the point to where their relationship with alcohol changes enough to where they don't just fear drinking, but instead they just don't drink. I'd love to hear some other thoughts on that. You know, my socials are all over everything. They're on the, the description of the podcast. You know, let me know what your thoughts are, what your relationship with this step is. When I first came to the program, my relationship was alcohol has defeated me and I and I have no choice but to kind of surrender to the idea that my life is completely unmanageable and I am completely at the behest of this obsession to drink. Uh, but that's changed for me. And if it hasn't changed for you, I'd, I'd like to hear that. If it has changed for you, I'd like to hear that too. Uh, maybe you have a different viewpoint of just those words. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Definitely share that with me. So on to the reading. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that, glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol, now become the rapturous creditor, bleeds us all of our self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. 
once this stark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy is as going human concerns is complete. But upon entering AA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. We perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. I'm going to say right now that if you're coming into the program, you're brand new to this, um, while for, for me personally, when I was brand new into this, it was important for me to admit defeat. You know, this thing had beat me. Whatever I thought I could do with drinking, I had to discard that. What I, what I didn't do, and I've seen so many do, is I didn't wallow in that defeat. I didn't come in with this shame that I was, I was no longer capable of being normal, and therefore I was broken. I came in because I knew that I needed to fix what was left. I needed to move forward knowing that I wasn't going to drink anymore. And it's really easy to come in shame-filled and to sit in that. And to even hear people say that that's required, and, and I don't think it is. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's counterintuitive, honestly. And if anything, building a foundation of, of recovery and sobriety on shame is a loose foundation. So I think that should be explored before moving forward with any of this. You know, work on what's next, work on what needs to be fixed, work on the things that are broken. Uh, but the idea that you're broken beyond repair and have to sit in this desperate, you know, deconstruction uh, is, is harmful, I think. We know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. See, this is the kind of language I'm talking about. This is the kind of language I don't really agree with. Until he humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Now, humbling yourself is different than like sitting in that devastating weakness. I don't think that's a, a I think that is safe to be humble and not be, um, not feel weak. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond doubt, immense experience. This is one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our, our whole society has sprung and flowered. When first challenged to admit defeat, most of us revolted. We had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. Then we had been told that so far as alcohol is concerned, self-confidence was no good whatever. In fact, it was a total liability. Our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. Now this I do believe. I'm tired of people saying that it's a lack of willpower. You just Your will just isn't strong enough to quit drinking. And then also hearing that if you do quit drinking and you don't adhere to every single one of these steps as they're written, that somehow you weren't a real alcoholic. I'm tired of hearing both things. I'm tired of people just suggesting to others that they know better what their recovery should look like. Willpower isn't a part of this. It took a lot of willpower for me to, to look people in the eyes and seek drinking above all else. You know what I mean? So willpower is fucked up already to begin with. And to apply it to this, to just suggest that this, this uncontrollable dependency on another substance is by choice, that I just woke up wanting to continue to be miserable because I just wasn't strong-willed enough, uh, is also destructive. And it needs to, you know, leave the brain if you're going to move forward. There was, they said, no such thing as personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy, they called it. The tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking, and then by an allergy of the body that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. 
Few indeed were those who, so assailed, had ever won through in single-handed combat. It was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources. And this had been true, apparently, ever since man had first crushed grapes. I don't know how they could possibly know that. I, how, how many people do you think they would have to survey to find out if somebody had a drinking problem and just quit? How would they even know that when they just quit, that their lives were still unmanageable? Where would they have gotten such a statistic? There's guesses. There's anecdotal evidence to suggest that. But this is where a lot of people take a departure from AA, is these claims like this. I don't believe this claim for a second. I know plenty of people who have just quit drinking. And while they explain a version of that in the big book, um, I think it's just a way to fear people into quitting this specific way. And that's fine, I guess. Uh, but I don't think it's necessary. I think plenty of people stop on their own. And I think plenty of people lead a normal and pretty just, and, you know, reasonable life after stopping on their own. And I will not hear someone, I, I will not tolerate somebody saying, well, they must not be a real alcoholic if they're able to do that. Because again, that's just suggesting that this is the only program that works and this is the only way to stay quit or that they're a dry drunk. Somehow their life and their quality of life is completely managed by the fact that they're not working this specific program. Uh, none of that holds water for me. Plenty of people quit through therapy, through other means. Plenty of people do quit and just are assholes forever. That's fine too. That's the thing that happens. Um, but we don't get to decide that for anybody else. This book doesn't get to decide that for anybody else. The only thing this book should really concern itself with is the people that want to quit through this, this uh, program. And that goes for its members as well. In AA's pioneering time, none but the most desperate cases could swallow and digest this unpalpable truth. Even these last gra graspers often had difficulty in realizing how hopeless they actually were. But a few did, and when these laid hold of AA principles with all the fervor with which the drowning sees life preservers, they almost invariably got well. That is why the first edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, published when our membership was small, dealt with low-bottom cases only. Many less desperate alcoholics tried AA, but did not succeed because they could not make the admission of hopelessness. And you know, I think that's, I, I'm going to sort of interject and say that that's probably true. When this book was first published, when AA, the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book was, was first published, I think that was the, the fact. A lot of that was societal. And while I think that people are still very much struggling with the stigma of alcoholism and drinking, and, you know, the societal protection of that. I think people are coming around. More people are starting to come around. One, to the fact that they don't need alcohol in their lives. Not everybody needs it. It's a fun thing for people to do if they can control it, but it's not a necessary thing. Fucking cocaine's a fun thing to do. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be a thing that you do just because it is socially acceptable. And more younger folks are coming around to that. Uh, more younger people are choosing not to drink at all. More people are coming to programs like AA and Smart Recovery well before they lose all their things because they can see the destructive pattern. A lot of that comes from just being more actively aware of mental health and issues surrounding that, being more aware of options, being more aware that there are people that have quit and have reclaimed their lives. A lot of them are kids of people that have had alcoholic parents who have gone through the program or at least have some awareness of the program. The bottom is being raised. That was always the plan. And it's great to see that just in the few years in between this book and the AA Big Book, that that's already being seen. 
It is a tremendous satisfaction to record that in the following years this changed. Alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their job, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. As this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. They were spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell the rest of us had gone through. Step since step one requires an admission that our lives had become unmanageable, how could people uh, such as these take this step? As a side note, one of my first girlfriends in, well, really at all, um, who I dated when I got out, I think I've mentioned her, uh, she came into the program when she was a teenager and she's still in the program. And she has been successfully, you know, non-drinking ever since then. She's in mental health, you know, care of some kind and helps a lot of young people, uh, come into the program? And that is a good question. You know, how, how exactly do you decide that your life is becoming unmanageable if your life seems fine? And again, I think you start to see the signs. You start fighting with your, your wife more, or start, you know, snapping at your kids, or you start being shitty at work, or you start seeing these trends that occur, you're drinking more, whatever the cases are, there's always a way that your life becomes a little bit unmanageable, or you can see that that's the direction it's going. It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. By going back in our own drinking histories, we could show that years before we realized realized that we were out of control, that our drinking even then was no more habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. To the doubters, we could say, perhaps you're not an alcoholic after all. Why don't you try some more controlled drinking? Bearing in mind, meanwhile, what we have told you about alcoholism. Again, that, that whole section right there fucked me up. <laughs> Because, I mean, I was 27 when I got out of prison, and I had, at that point, not really ever tried healthy controlled drinking. Not that I went into it with healthy controlled drinking. Um, and so I went out for 10 years trying that shit. I think the way that I would word it now is, you know, if you're not sure, ask yourself how many people you know uh, battle with that question, you know, that are normal drinkers. How many people have a drink here and there and then sit at home and contemplate whether or not they could be an alcoholic? That doesn't mean that that's the case, that that's true, but that probably means that you should explore some options. If you're just partying with your friends because all your friends party and you find that when you want to quit that you can't, or that you drink too much, or that you put yourself in you know unsafe situ situations constantly, then yeah, that's all stuff that you should consider. I wouldn't necessarily consider the idea that you should just go out and keep trying, <laughs> maybe practice to get better at drinking, because I can tell you right now that normal drinkers don't have to practice. You know what I mean? Like they don't have to get better at not getting completely blackout drunk. Uh, they just don't. This attitude brought immediate and practical results. It was then discovered that when one alcoholic had planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. Follow ugh, I don't know if that's true either. Remember, at one point in time for me personally, I forgot completely about this program. Completely forgot about this even being an option. Totally drank the idea of recovery completely out of my head. I think it is important to plant the seed though. And I think that's why it's important not to run around and tell people what their recovery should look like. Could you imagine being unsure if you're even an alcoholic and you hear someone say to someone else, well, maybe you're not a real alcoholic because X, Y, and Z, because I think so, because I read the book and I know better than you. Could you imagine what kind of a precedence that's gotta be setting for people that are unsure? Following every spree, he would say to himself, maybe those AAs were right. After a few such experiences, often years before the onset of extreme difficulties, he would return to us, convinced he would hit bottom as truly as any of us. John Barleycorn himself had become our best advocate. Why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. 
For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of, of taking. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? Who cares about anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do th these things in order to stay alive himself. Under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA. And there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. Then, and only then, do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as the dying can be. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. You know, okay, yeah, I'm kind of half and half with that. I don't think there is such thing as an average alcoholic. I don't think there is a such thing as, um, you know, being at a point of absolute desperation uh, as a requirement. I don't think that that's necessary. I think a bottom kind of is, but I mean, yeah, if, if you're, you feel like you're at your lowest, that you are comfortable going and you decide to quit drinking, go to AA, then do that. Like, that's fantastic. That's counterproductive. If you start telling people, well, maybe you haven't truly hit your bottom, telling people to go back out until they're sure that could be a death sentence. Uh, so I, you know, I, I walk kind of a fine line with that when I talk to people. Yeah, there's been a few people that have come to me and they're like, I'm not really sure if I need to quit. And I tell them my story and then we try to find common ground and then I just let them know, do you do you find that you're you're unable to live without alcohol? What is it, you know, and I tell them to ask these, themselves these questions. They don't need to answer them to me. They need to answer them to anybody else but themselves. Go home and think about the facts of, think about the what comes up when you think I'm never gonna drink again. If you're racked with complete and utter fear, maybe that's something to look at. If this, the even concept of that is so foreign and baffling that you just can't even answer that and you just have 10,000 excuses on why that's not even necessary, maybe that's something to look at. The doctor came in and said, hey, you need to quit drinking or you're going to die. I, 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 I personally be like, cool, okay, fine, no problem. But that wasn't always the case. I've seen people drink themselves to death. My, my mother did it. So, you know, ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, can I be around my friends if I'm not drinking? And if the answer is no, then maybe that's something to look at. There's always there's always things to consider. None of those things make your life unmanageable. Being around your friends and having to get drunk is pretty common, right? I mean, that's what the fucking Budweiser commercials and shit tell us. Uh, but if it's crippling, like if you're basically masking a crippling social anxiety behind drinking, then that's something to look at. Does it mean you have to quit drinking? No, maybe not. I mean, that's where I think most fears for people come from. Be be open to the idea that you might never be able to drink again, um, if possible. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. No one can decide that for you but you. All right, that concludes step one. Now, again, if you have any feedback for this, let me know. You can find me at, at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. You can find me at... On Instagram, atheist underscore in underscore AA. You can find me at an atheist reads the big book of AA on Facebook, both the group and the, the page. And you can find me on Twitter at an atheist in. Uh, just, you know, reach out. Let me know what you think. Now, this is going to be the next thing we're going to read or I'm going to go over is tradition. Tradition one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. This is... One of my favorite traditions, one of my favorite things to come out of this. I actually, I like a lot of the traditions. I think it really had a lot to do with why this program even exists today. The unity, the program, 
depends on a common struggle and the recovery from that struggle. Personal recovery depends on AA unity. Now, of course, that's not for everybody. Some people can find recovery in other programs. But this to me is saying you have to put your personal recovery aside to ensure the unity of AA. The group comes first when it comes to, you know, AA as a whole. I think that's such a great message. I mean, this is a program where you're supposed to give it away in order to keep it. The idea is that you you help others find their personal path. You don't tell them what's wrong with them. You don't tell them what they have to do. You don't tell them they need God. You don't tell them that, you know, if you don't work this program exactly as I did, you're going to die. You don't tell them any of that shit. You help them find their own journey. You walk along their, their path with them as long as it doesn't diverge you from your own path. But you do so knowing that you have to be outside of yourself in this program. You have to, you have to find an inner strength to be outside of yourself for this program. It sounds kind of paradoxical. I'm sure there's some people who are like, what the fuck are you even talking about? I am secure in my, in my recovery enough that I can help the next person. And the absolute core of this program is contingent on me doing that. The drama is un- unimportant. Getting it actually involved in other people's affairs is unimportant. Making sure the next person finds a path to recovery that works for them is. It's all this whole thing is. The reading. The unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is the most cherished quality our society has. Our lives, the lives of all to come, depend squarely upon it. We stay whole, or AA dies. Without unity, the heart of AA would cease to beat. Our world arteries would no longer carry the life-giving grace of God. His gift to us would be spent aimlessly. Back again in their caves, alcoholics would reproach us and say, What a great thing AA might have been. Does this mean, some will anxiously ask, that in AA the individual doesn't count for much? Is he to be dominated by his group and swallowed up in it? We may certainly answer this question with a loud no. We believe there isn't a fellowship on earth which lavishes more devoted care upon its individual members. Surely there is none which more jealously guards the individual's right to think, talk, and act as he wishes. I don't know how that how true that statement is. I love the confidence that Bill has in this program at this point and how it treats its members. Um, I would say that at times it, it fails on that. And he later sort of comes around to the fact that we're not always really taking care of people and their individuality. It's something that constantly needs to be worked on. But for the most part, yeah, the idea that you can come into the program and basically believe whatever you want to, uh, it, it, you know, holds true for the most part. Nobody really nitpicks each other's Christianity. They just nitpick those that don't believe, which, you know, whatever, even even folks like that are coming along and coming around. I'm having a conversation uh, right now with a gentleman who is of faith that's actually asking me questions because he found my podcast and he's like, this is interesting. I want to learn more. So people people are, are starting to learn that in the program and out, but, but you know, this is mostly about the program here, that uh, not everybody has to believe what you believe. That is a powerful message. It's not, that's where I really drill home to folks that are like, oh, it's a cult. Well, not really. If it were, uh, we would be told we have to do things a certain way. And while there are people in this program that try to do that, it seems like every one of them has a different version of that that they tell us. You know what I mean? There's the Bible, you know, the, the whole old book thumpers that have their version of how you're supposed to work this program or you're going to die. There's the newer wave folks that have a version of how you should work this program or you're going to die. There's people that are like me and most of my friends who are like, this isn't the only way to stay sober. You're not going to die if you don't do it. <clears throat> so it's, you know, still mostly capable of thinking whatever you want to think in this program. 
No AA can compel another to do anything. Nobody can be punished or expelled. Our 12 steps to recovery are suggestions. The 12 traditions which guarantee AA's unity contain not a single don't. They repeatedly say we ought, but never you must. And that's, again, that's a message I think a lot of people in the program do miss, is that this you must thing. I don't know where it came from. It's not in the book. The same people thumping the book will definitely tell you that you must do X, Y, and Z. So if you are struggling with people telling you that, no, 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 you have to do it this way, just, you know, whip out the chapter to tradition one, maybe sign up for a chair and give people a refresher on what it says. I usually do. You know, if people want to have an issue with me pointing out the fact that I don't have to do what the fuck they tell me, and there's proof in the literature, the book that people follow to a fucking T, if they have issue with that, then we can talk about it after the meeting. Too many minds, all this liberty for the individual spells sheer anarchy. Every newcomer, every friend who looks at AA for the first time is greatly puzzled. They see liberty verging on license, yet they recognize at once that AA has an irresistible strength of purpose and action. How, they ask, can such a crowd of anarchists function at all? How can they possibly place their common welfare first? What in heaven's name holds them together? Those who look closely soon have the key to this strange paradox. The AA member has to conform to the principles of recovery. His life actually depends upon obedience to spiritual principles. If he deviates too far, the penalty is sure and swift. He sickens and dies. At first, he goes along because he must, but later he discovers a way of life he really wants to live. Moreover, he finds he cannot keep this priceless gift unless he gives it away. Neither he nor anybody else can survive unless he carries the AA message. See, and this is, they just fucking told us that there's no, you must, (laughs) right? This is the stuff that I'm like, okay, you, you didn't listen to yourself. Yes, it's important that we give this program away. No, you're not gonna fucking die if you don't. You might have a hard time. It could be a lot easier if you did, but it's not a requirement. You're not gonna fucking die. Just plain and simple. If you find yourself in a position where you're struggling, then doing for others is a good way to get out of that struggle. But you you do not have to give this program away. It's just really, really encouraged. The moment this 12-step work forms a group, another discovery is made that most individuals cannot recover unless there is a group. Realization dawns that he is but a small part of a great whole, that no personal sacrifice is too great for preservation of the fellowship. Uh, that's not true at all. That's a weird thing to throw in here, especially in the big book. It talks about don't live in the program. Some people might find that that's what they need, but no, I do not agree with the idea that there is no personal sacrifice that is too great for the preservation of the fellowship. I think it's important to put personalities aside for the preservation of the fellowship. It's important to take actions to help preserve the fellowship. No, you, you should not like give up your house or your car or your money or your funds. Those are personal things. None of that should be sacrificed for the the group. Like it's enough they ask for a couple dollars. You know what I mean? Like this is such a weird, I don't like the sense at all. He learns that the clamor of desires and ambitions within must be silenced whenever these could damage the group. It becomes plain that the group must survive and the individual will not. That's again, that's suggesting that AA were the only way to recover. It's not. But the fellowship for me is important and it's important for a lot of people. So at the outset, how best to live and work together as groups become the prime question. In the world about us, we saw personalities destroying whole peoples. The struggle for wealth, power, and prestige was tearing humanity apart as never before. If strong people were stalemated in the search for peace and harmony, that what was to become of our erratic band of alcoholics? 
As we once struggled and prayed for individual recovery, just so earnestly did we commence to quest for the principles through which AA itself might survive. On anvils of experience, the structure of our society was hammered out. Countless times in as many cities and hamlets, we reacted reenacted the story of Eddie Rickenbacker and his courageous company when their plane crashed in the Pacific. Like us, they had suddenly found themselves saved from death, but still floating upon a perilous sea. How well they saw that their common welfare came first. None might become selfish or water for, of water or bread. Each needed to consider the others, and in abiding faith, they knew they must find their real strength. And this they did find, in measure to transcend all the defects of their final or their frail craft, every test of uncertainty, pain, fear, and despair, and even the death of one. Thus, what just... If I'm remembering the story correctly, I'm pretty sure the death of the one became the food of the many. Maybe that's not the best analogy for a group of drunks. Thus has it been with AA. By faith and by works, we have been able to build upon the lessons of an incredible experience. They live today in the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, which, God willing, shall sustain us in unity for so long as he may need us. All right, there you have it. Uh, Let me know what you think about this transition into the 12 by 12. Um, I think it's going to work out great. I think this is pretty well close to the length of an episode. I do apologize. This episode is not going to be as clean as I usually make it. There's a little bit of rushing that's going to have to go on because I did not leave myself enough time to finish this episode in a reasonable uh, manner. This is the first time that this has happened, and I'm actually really impressed that since July, I have given myself ample time to finish these episodes. I'm usually a uh, last-minute person, so... This is pretty impressive for me (laughs) to be realistic. So I'm going to be rushing this out. Basically, I mean, to put in perspective, it is 940 at night, uh, Monday night. This has to go out and be ready by tomorrow at 1 p.m. But really, it needs to be ready before I go to bed tonight because I work in the morning. There's no way that I'm going to be able to get this done at work and I can't leave work just to finish this. So basically, this needs to be done in the next half an hour. And usually I give myself a lot more time for that. So I apologize for the quality of this episode. Uh, I was more concerned with getting it out and being consistent than I was with it being perfectly, uh, you know, figured out. Um, that being said, I, I'm not going to leave myself without enough time to finish this thing. I just made plans over the weekends and I just did not allow myself to really consider that. And part of it was, I just forgot. I just plain forgot. Um, but again, out of how what, 20 episodes since July, the first time this has happened, I'm really honestly pretty excited about that. So take, you know, celebrate them small victories. Uh, that being said, I really, I personally enjoyed this episode. I, I liked the transition between being able to do both, uh, the, the step and the tradition and being able to talk a little bit more long form about that stuff. You know, I think a lot of people struggle with the steps and I think a lot of people forget about their, tr- the traditions. So, um, this should be pretty interesting moving forward. If anybody has any feedback, please reach out to my socials. I've put them in the episode. They're in my description. I'm not going to go over them again. Um, but I'd love to hear back and I'd love to hear what you think about the new, you know, situation. And again, I ask everybody, please, you know, send this off to somebody that you think might like it or might get something out of it or might hate it and have some words for me, whichever way it goes. Uh, really, you know, I'm really trying to resist advertising this in other ways. Organic advertising is not something I'm very natural with, and uh, I don't like to spam this stuff, and I'm trying not to like purchase ads because I feel like that kind of defeats you know what I'm going for here. But uh, I might do that in the future because I think my listenership is telling me that I am 
carrying a message that people want to hear because it, there's not a lot of drop off anymore. It's about 50 people now that are listening, 40 to 50, which is just insane to me. It's absolutely mind, mind boggling to me um, and extremely humbling. So I will uh, do my best to get this out to people as organically as I can. And if, if folks can do the same, that'd be fantastic. Um, that's not a requirement. You know, if I never go above shit, if I never went above one, I was going to be happy. So, um, what, whoever is still listening, I just want to keep you guys engaged. So, uh, definitely give me that feedback. Definitely let me know how I can improve and definitely share with your friends. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day until next time.